He's Marcus Frampton, Chief Investment Officer of the $65 billion Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation, one of the U.S.'s few sovereign wealth funds. Having been promoted in December after a long investing career, he's the new kid on the CIO block. But his near seven years with the organization means he knows the place better than most. I'm Chris Butera, and you're listening to the Chief Investment Officer Podcast, where we bring you some of the best and brightest asset owners and thought leaders in the financial community. Before we begin, May 16th and 17th marks the 10th annual CIO Summit, and asset owners are welcome to register. The yearly event will take place at the Harvard Club in New York City, and it'll feature powerful panels and engaging discussions from the likes of Charles Van Vliet, David Holmgren, Anne Deneen, Rosalind Husenian, and many more. To register for the event, visit AICIO.com and head on over to our events section. Co-investments are a growing trend in institutional investing, and Frampton and his team helped build out the fund's co-investment program, which is about $8 billion. The task rolls into a variety of asset classes, such as private equity, private credit, and infrastructure. Frampton comes alive as he explains how this concept came to be and how it works. The process of co-investments has evolved over the years. I first got involved in co-investing actually in the mid-2000s with Steve Mosley, who's now our head of alternatives at the Permanent Fund. We were at a private equity firm at the time that specialized in co-investments. Back then, it really was a post-closed syndication was the most common for the sponsors. And over time, the process got more complex and there's been more variations on how it plays out. Today, there are situations where the permanent fund will take a syndication of a deal that a sponsor's already closed. And that has been pretty consistent over the last 20 years, how that process plays out. We've also gotten involved in situations where a sponsor is active bidding on an asset and does not have exclusivity. And I think a fewer number of limited partners play in that market. So as co-investing has gotten more crowded, we've tried to differentiate ourselves in that respect. And there are certainly hurdles building programs like this at a public fund. So when we first started getting involved in pre-win situations, we had to make sure that we had budget coverage for dead deal costs and that we were thoughtful about dead deal costs because those numbers can grow to big numbers in a short period of time. And I think we had to keep those on a shorter leash than back when we were in the private sector. Typically, we'll be contacted by one of our private equity or infrastructure managers around a deal that they've either won or are looking at. And we try to be pretty responsive on the upfront stage around even simple things like getting the non-disclosure agreement signed, getting an initial call with the sponsor, looking at materials and giving a quick feedback around whether it's something we're interested in or not. We're seeing three or four new co-investment deals a week. And I think the reason we're getting that high level of flow is that we're really responsive up front. And then we've got a process with our investment committee where we can be pretty nimble. So it typically would be a one-month process where we're maybe meeting with the management team of the potential investee company, 
we'll retain an outside counsel to review the, the legal documentation on the deal, and then we'll do a series of phone calls with the sponsor, all of which we have to synthesize into an investment committee memo for our colleagues to ultimately approve the transaction. And we have to keep a pretty high level of communication with the GP along the way that if there are issues we're running into, we communicate that pretty fast. The initial structure used funds of funds, but as it evolved, Alaska Permanent started moving away from that area in each co-investment sector. The fund now runs much of that program through managers and continues to reap grand rewards. Thanks to Steve Mosley, Frampton's head of alternatives, the private equity structure is its biggest success story, with private credit not too far behind. The evolution of our private market co-investment programs has, at the Permanent Fund, followed movements away from fund-to-fund -fund managers. When I joined the Permanent Fund in 2012, we were making commitments to infrastructure funds directly without an intermediary, so it was a natural first place for co-investing. Shortly thereafter, in the private equity area, we moved away from fund-to-funds and into discretion in-house for the fund selections. And we pretty quickly thereafter went into co-investing. Private credit has been the last area where we moved away from fund to funds, and that was two or three years ago. Private credit's also an area that LP co-investment has not been as widely embraced. And I think that's because the deals move very fast in private credit. In some cases, you need to respond in a couple weeks about whether you're in a deal. So we had to be, I think, more thoughtful about our investment process in private credit. But really, the impetus was movement away from fund to funds and then taking, call it a year to develop a strategy that we think works with the market there. We currently have on the private equity side a target allocation of 12% of our fund. Our fund is... 65 billion. We're generally trying to back managers that are top quartile. Historically, our orientation has not been to find a manager that has fee discounts or a social message that we like. So it is very much performance oriented. We're backing top quartile managers and then we're trying to be their top co-investment partner when deals arise that are too big for their fund. There's a communication program with managers going to their annual meetings, making sure they understand our process, and then also for us understanding how they work with co-investors. And every firm's a little bit different. If you look today, our private equity program is about $8 billion. We have about a billion five in co-investments today. That's the product of six years of hard work predominantly by our head of alternatives, Steve Mosley. And that program has a over 60% IRR on the co-investments since inception. So it's been a big success for us and something that we want to build on. On the infrastructure side, it's similar. The biggest difference is we have a fewer number of managers. So we probably have 11 or 12 infrastructure GP relationships, whereas the number is closer to 100 for private equity. So as a result, the number of deals we see are a little bit lower, but our relationships with the sponsors are a little bit higher touch and perhaps a little higher quality because we can spend more time on each. 
And the infrastructure co-investment program's also been really successful. We have, out of a $2.6 billion infrastructure portfolio, we've got about $500 million in co-investments, and that's been a 22% since inception IRR. So in both areas, they've been great contributors in areas that we want to build on. Our first private credit co-investments were about a year ago. Our first direct fund commitments outside of our fund-to-fund partner were about two years ago. We did have some older MES commitments, but in terms of a concerted direct fund effort a couple of years ago, co-investments about a year ago. And that program's off to a great start. We've got about $80 million deployed into co-investments now for private credit with about a 9% IRR. There's no J-curve, which is fantastic, and performance has been good out of the gates. One of the things that I've believed in, and I think my colleagues believe in, is not picking private market fund managers for any reason other than that they're the best at what they do in their given area, that they're top quartile, that they have a consistent team, a proven track record, and an attractive market opportunity. We don't select managers because we think they'll show us co-investments, similar to the fact that we don't pick managers because they'll discount their fees. We've found many instances where we've backed managers that have not historically had co-investment opportunities but did subsequently. We think that it's the most important thing to get right is fund selection and that co-investment should come secondarily. That's worked out for us. That's not to say that a different approach doesn't work out for another investor, but that hasn't been our emphasis. Frampton and company didn't just get the idea out of nowhere. The concept was first introduced by Jay Willoughby, the CIO that gave our guest a job at the fund in 2012 through an observation in real estate that took on a life of its own. The CIO that hired me back in 2012, Jay Willoughby, contributed a lot to the fund, and one of the things he contributed was the first emphasis on direct private market investments. He recognized earlier than a lot of people in 2010 that rental homes purchased at foreclosure was probably a once-in-a-lifetime buying opportunity. And he went into that in a big way. We committed close to a billion dollars to a program where we partnered with Wayne Hughes, the founder of Public Storage, to start a company called American Homes for Rent. And we did it across two programs. We committed close to $700 million to a basic rental home program, and then we committed around $150 million to a high-end rental strategy. We're completely out now of the basic strategy with a very nice return. American Homes for Rent is now a publicly traded REIT, is the entity that came out of that. And we have a joint venture on higher-end homes where we're selling the homes on a one-by-one basis. So that's a program that's kind of sunsetting. It's not a full asset class. Probably right now, purchasing homes for rent is not at the top of my list of compelling opportunities in the market. But if the cycle turns and we enter a recession, we could be right back at the table with the American Homes for Rent looking at that again. Following an abrupt departure of its previous CIO, 
Frampton took the interim reins in October. Shortly after, he was promoted once the fund realized it had its candidate all along. In that time, he's made a few changes, and he's got some plans, specifically in another program. I've been CIO for six months now. If you tack on the interim CIO period, it's been nine months. I feel fortunate to have this opportunity. I think the Permanent Fund is one of the marquee institutional investors out there. I think we've got a fantastic mission. Having worked in the private sector for a very long time, it's really gratifying to work at a fund that's really meaningful to the average person in Alaska. And I think we do a lot of good in the state. So I feel very fortunate. It's a big responsibility. I think I got this job in large part because the performance of the fund's been good. If you look at our five-year numbers, we've beaten our passive benchmark by 300 basis points for the total fund and our performance benchmark by 100 basis points. I think our board really wanted to see a continuity of what we've been doing the last several years. And there was some concern about if someone from outside the organization came in, whether it would have as much of a shot at continuing. I think that led in part to it. And I was also able to communicate to our board that I plan on being in Alaska for a very long time. We've had probably a little bit more CIO turnover than some other funds have had and think that went a long way. On the margin my plans, kind of consistent with what I just said, is to continue the success we've had in many of our areas. But on the margin, I'm holding a little bit more cash in recognition of where I think we might be in the cycle. When I came into this role, we only held a few hundred million of cash. I've boosted that up to over two billion in cash. I just want to make sure that we'll have dry powder for opportunities. We're overweight hedge funds to a degree right now, and I like that area. And if we can find more managers that we want to back, we'll go even more overweight. That's probably the one area that I think we have a shot at hitting our return objective without taking a lot of market risk. So we're backing market neutral equity managers and macro managers. That's an area that I'd like to emphasize perhaps more than we have in the past. I think we've got a differentiated strategy in hedge funds that's Another area that we moved away from fund to funds, this one was three years ago, going into the new program tried to set up a pretty clear criteria for what we're trying to accomplish. And I think it's different than what other plans have done. Hedge funds are as broad and varied of an area. I was about to say asset class, but I'm not sure it could even be called an asset class. We've defined it very narrowly. We don't want any persistent beta in our portfolio. So we've got macro managers that will take directional bets on markets, but will not be net long equities over time. And in fact, some of our macro managers are net short today. And then we have equity market neutral, which are managers that short as much as they're long. Lastly, we've got some relative value managers and some multi-strat managers that have track records of earning attractive returns, but very uncorrelated and without persistent beta. What we've found is whereas our old strategy, which kind of mimicked the HFRI index, we were down 18% in 08 and struggled to hit 3% returns in the subsequent bull market, doesn't look good to our constituents and hard to argue for that return profile to be in a portfolio. 
In the subsequent three years, we've hit about a 5% net return on a monthly correlation basis at a zero correlation to the S&P. And so we've found that even in big down periods like December, we did not lose money. And the year to date through December, the calendar year December, which was a very difficult period, and I think the average hedge fund was down 4%, we made 1.5% on the year, so below our return objective, but capital was protected in that difficult year. It's kind of early days on this new hedge fund program, and it hasn't been tested to the degree hedge funds were tested in 08, obviously, but I'm very encouraged, and it's an area I want to keep growing. Ultimately, we're a long-term investor. Our constituents in the state of Alaska are expecting us to earn a CPI plus five return over a multi-generational period of time. I'm acutely aware of the fact that our edge does not lie in calling year-to-year market swings. Everything we do is, however, on the margin, we are holding more cash now. We're considering exiting private market assets through a secondary sale, and we're emphasizing hedge funds in a beta-neutral format. Part of that reflects a tactical view of where we are, and part of it is just my perspective on how a conservative investor should run their portfolio. I think that it's hard to ignore, though, where equity valuations are, real estate cap rates, multiples on private equity deals are also very high. The other day, I was doing an analysis of a regression of the Case-Shiller PE index versus subsequent 10-year returns, and that analysis suggested that the next 10-year equity returns should be low single digits plus the dividend yield. There, Our consultant, Callan, has a little bit higher outlook for equities, but I think everyone agrees the return environment from here is likely to be subdued. That's why we're trying to, on the margin, be conservative. Also, within our equity portfolio, our head of public equities, Fawad Razak, is very thoughtful about finding value in the markets. So he's emphasized to me and to others internally that the ratio of multiples on value stocks to growth stocks right now is at an all-time low, actually two standard deviations beyond where it's historically been. He's got an overweight in his portfolio to value stocks. He has an overweight in his portfolio to emerging markets. Little moves like that have over time added value for us. We're always looking for where the value is in an expensive world, and then on the margin, trying to hold more cash and emphasize hedge funds. I think the reason why we've had success in this program is because of the consistency of our approach. Steve and I have been doing co-investments in private markets for over 15 years, and we've tried to stay disciplined over time. In 07 and 06, there were a lot of LPs piling into co-investments like they are today. And we've tried to, in periods like that, differentiate ourselves by being easy to work with, with sponsors, and then to avoid the, the appeal of putting more money out in an environment where there are more deals, but more expensive deals. Really, we've tried to be consistent and apply a consistent approach and then not be tempted to put more capital out in an environment like this, while many of our peers are doing that right now. If you're an avid reader on AICIO.com and a regular listener to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, then you know wearing the CIO crown is not all glory. As he progresses, 
Frampton is getting used to mitigating some of the challenges that come with the role. He's also figuring out a few other elements to the new gig. I got the full-time job at the end of September, and I was greeted by a down 8% on the stock market in October and close to that amount in December. Volatility picked up. We've reacted by rebalancing much more frequently than we have in the past. That was a challenge that I didn't necessarily anticipate, just the increase in volatility. Managing a bigger team than I have in the past is a challenge, and recruiting, like I just went through, is something that we're very focused on that is probably one of the top two or three challenges for us right now. I would add to the list that Work-life balance for me has been a challenge. I'm working longer hours than I probably have in my career. I think as we move forward, as I get more comfortable with areas that I wasn't involved in previously, like our risk system and more involved in our public markets activities, that work-life balance for me personally will probably normalize a little bit. In terms of the job, managing the team and recruiting is big area. And then also just making sure that our team is getting the resources that they need. Like many state funds, we're on a year-to-year budget cycle with our legislature, and there are items that come up that the team needs, and we need to make sure we're being competitive on the comp side. More so our CEO than I have to be an advocate with our constituents around what the resources are. I need to play a role in communicating those to our CEO. We know about Alaska's co-investments, and we've learned about the triumphs of its hedge funds. And we even know how Frampton got his title. But there's still one question that remains. Why the heck would somebody want to move to Alaska? We have a lot to offer. It's a good work-life balance at the permanent fund. We tend to do the right amount of work. Other places I've worked, we've had very long investment memos, whereas here at the Permanent Fund, we do the analysis that's important, but we don't package it up in a 100-page investment committee memo. We've tried to attract people by not keeping folks at the office at 2 a.m. the night before an investment committee meeting. We've tried to, and I think with some success, give responsibility the person on my team leading the private credit co-investment program is Jared Brimberry. He's gotten a lot of experience in a short period of time because he's proven that he does a great job when we give him that experience. So I think whereas at a bigger firm in a bigger city, junior people might not have as much opportunity to move up over time has been appealing. And then also just being in a place like Juno with great outdoor activities appeals to a lot of people. We've had trouble filling some positions, so we've had a number of open positions on the investment team that we've been working on filling for the past five or six months. By and large, it's hard to recruit against other state funds that are also building their teams right now on the metrics of dollar compensation and having to move your life to a new place. Typically, we are recruiting in the lower 48. But once people come to the permanent fund, I Generally speaking, they find a home that is great and a a good long-term career path. That's what we've tried to emphasize. It's not without challenges, though. And like I said, we have a number of open positions that we've taken more time to fill than we might if we were a hedge fund located in New York. Being a California boy, the permanent fund CIO enjoys a good hike. And there's plenty to be done in the last frontier. 
While the great outdoors and northern lights are a big plus for Frampton, his hobby and area of work are one and the same. Simply put, the man loves investing, so much that he can't take a break from it. Well, I guess I'm fortunate that the thing I'm most passionate about is investing. So when you look at how I spend my personal time, a lot of it revolves around investing. I'm involved in an angel investment group in Alaska where we're putting together a pitch competition that's in process now and will award a seed investment to a startup in Alaska. So the venture community in Alaska can be built out a little bit more. And I think it's groups like that that make a big difference. Been spending time on that. I'm involved in some personal investments. I'm actually out here this week on a vacation. I have an investment in a company personally in Long Island that makes laboratory equipment and has some really interesting new products. So I'm spending some time with them. In the summer, Alaska's got great hiking. So I'm involved in that. I like to get down to Southern California still on long weekends to see family and friends down there. But I am fortunate that the line of work I'm in also happens to be my hobby and my greatest passion right now. Thanks for stopping by and listening to another episode of the Chief Investment Officer Podcast. We'd like to thank Marcus Frampton for taking the time to discuss his journey and tell us about the Permanent Fund's unique programs while pulling back the curtain a bit on how it runs its money. Once again, if you'd like to register for our 10th Annual CIO Summit on May 16th and 17th at the Harvard Club in New York City, visit AICIO.com. And why not listen to our other podcasts on the site, SoundCloud, and on iTunes? I'm Chris Butera, and it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll.